Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Change your plans today. Of course, this is the time you expect, and this is the time we enjoy engaging in our end-of-the-week reporters' roundtable. And we were especially looking forward to diving into this week's important Republican primaries. But Tuesday's school shooting in Nevada, Texas, forced all of us to drop everything and focus yet again on the insanity of so many guns loose in this country and the tremendous pain and suffering they cause to so many families in so many communities. We'll touch on the primaries a little later, but today we start off with yet another mass murder, 19 fourth graders and two teachers shot and killed with an assault rifle at Robb Elementary School, the 30th school shooting in this country so far, and it's only May. Why so many here? That's a question a heartbroken President Biden asked the nation Tuesday evening. These kinds of mass shootings rarely happen anywhere else in the world. Why? They have mental health problems. They have domestic disputes in other countries. But these kinds of mass shootings never happen with the kind of frequency that happen in America. Why? Why are we willing to live with this carnage? Where in God's name is our backbone? Stand up to the lobbies. It's time for those who obstruct or delay or block the common sense gun laws. We need to let you know that we will not forget. And joining us today to speak about this latest mass murder in Uvalde, Texas, our good friend Igor Volsky. He is the founder and executive director of a great organization that is focused on doing something about guns in this country. It's called Guns Down America, gunsdownamerica.org. Igor, thank you for joining us. And let me ask you the question I know you get from a lot of people is, we've seen this before and we've seen the same process happen over and over again, all expressions of outrage and then thoughts and prayers, and then nothing happens until the next mass shooting. Is there any hope that this time is going to be any different? There is. Uh, And it's because there are two people, Bill, who can break the cycle you're describing. Their names are Chuck Schumer and President Joe Biden. These are two, well, look, there are two people who A, run uh, campaigns promising to do everything they can to address this issue, to move legislation to address this issue, to use their executive powers to address this issue, to lead on this issue. That's what they say when they need our votes. Now that they're in power, it's a bit of a different story. All all of a sudden, you hear a lot about structural obstacles and the filibuster and Joe Manchin and how, you know, everything will probably fail. And so it's just not worth trying. And I submit to you that after 19 kids die, that it is worth trying. That, in fact, you have an obligation to stop your caucus from going on vacation for two weeks and to hold discussions during that period about what we can do, what kind of deal we can make in order to make our communities safer. And yes, you might fail because of all of those structural challenges, but at least you're caught actually trying, actually fighting for the American people. You look at the polls on this uh, bill, majorities of Americans and majorities of black and brown Americans, the core of the Democratic base, urging their elected leaders to do something on this problem because they feel unsafe. And somehow, 
The answer from the Senate Majority Leader and the President is to throw up their hands and say, well, it's just too hard. Well, guess what? Both of you were elected to tackle hard problems, to lead, not to follow whatever Mitch McConnell wants to do. So do it. It's up to them to break the cycle and, frankly, up to Joe Biden to seize this moment of leadership and to show the country that you can break the cycle, that that lawmakers can at least try to build safer communities. And I bet you, I bet you, for that, they will be rewarded in the midterms. I'm not here to defend Joe Biden or Chuck Schumer, but to talk about how we can solve and stop these mass murders, which I know is your goal as well. Uh, How can you ignore the fact that Mitch McConnell will, no matter how much talking they do, will invoke the filibuster and 50 Republicans will vote against it? Let me say several things. So, there's, so, so there are some tangible things the president can do that do not require Mitch McConnell. The first is he can open, for the very first time, a White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Because right now, Bill, there's not a single senior staffer in the White House whose job and portfolio is solely focused on this crisis. Not one. Let that okay. sink in. Not one. So with a stroke of a pen, Without Mitch McConnell, Joe Biden can do this. He's choosing not to, and he's rebuffed pressure from survivors for over a year, but that's something very tangible he could do. That office would help guide the government's response, would help develop a legislative strategy, would widen the pipeline for executive actions that he could be taking. So that's, to me, absolutely critical. Second, Uh, this- However, if I may say- that is not going to get any legislation passed. Well, hold up. I'm, is- I'm, I'm, get, I'm building up to it. Building up to it. Okay. okay. Second, the president, his vice president, and cabinet members should be crisscrossing the country, talking to impacted communities, building support for legislation and for cha- the changes that we need. The president should be holding conversations in the White House with key stakeholders, senators, survivors, community members, to show how important this issue is. And then they need to create a real timetable for holding hearings and holding a vote. Now, look, yes, there, hold up here, I'm getting to it. There is the filibuster. Yes, I would still say that is not getting 60 votes. No, Bill, I get that's not getting 60 votes. But the argument that I'm making to you is even if in, in the next few months, in this short term, it's impossible to make progress because of those structural elements. The message that you're communicating to the American people is that you're fighting for them and that these structural elements and these damn lawmakers who care more about their careers and the lives of their constituents have to go. It's a longer term strategy. And if you don't do what I describe, then you're building absolutely nothing. I'm talking about building power. I'm talking about creating muscle memory for lawmakers to actually do something when tragedy strikes. None of that exists right right now. None of it. We need to build it up from the ground. And clearly, by the questions you're asking me, and frankly, so many other interviews I do of people look at me like I have three heads to even suggest (laughs) that people should freaking fight for the promises they make us when they need our votes. That is incredibly discouraging. Like 19 kids are dead. If your argument is, well, we can't do anything in the next couple of months because of the filibusters, let's throw up our arms and walk away. I completely reject that. This is going to take time. But without going through the process that I describe, we will never get there. But uh, again, you and I share the same goal, right? However, I think you are ignoring the fact that today, the the opposition, the impo- I, I, I don't believe it's impossible, but the blockage, right, is coming from Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans, 50 of them today, they know that 90% of the American people support background checks. They won't, and you, you you nailed it. They won't vote that way because they consider their career more important than the lives of every one of those 19 kids who was killed in Avaldi, Texas. So why isn't your focus on 
at least equally on them instead of on Joe Biden, who probably more than anybody who served in the Senate has done a lot in his career on gun safety measures. I am not suggesting that we shouldn't be discussing the obstructionism that you're pointing to. I'm simply saying that in this moment, when you have Democrats in power, it is critical for us to squeeze every ounce of energy from them to do this fight. And the reason, the reason, Bill, is because with the appropriate pressure from us, we can get them to fight. You and I can go burn ourselves in front of Mitch McConnell's office and nothing will happen because there are zero incentives for them to do so. The argument that I'm making is if Joe Biden and his Democratic caucus go full court press (laughs) on this issue, brings back memories, then it will help them expand the caucus in 22 and beyond. Because if voters are telling you that crime is their top three concern, if you have such huge majorities saying, I am tired of worrying that I'll get shot when I go grocery shopping, or when I send my children to school, I need someone to actually do something about it. When you begin to meet that demand, and by the way, it's a kitchen table issue, and don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. Because it's a question of will your child actually come back to the kitchen table after they go to school? Uh, when when, When you begin to actually take this issue seriously, as opposed to paying it lip service, that's where you could get the Mitch McConnells out of office and 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 create a pathway for structural reform around the filibuster and 60 votes. Do you believe that this issue uh, does resonate and should be uh, the number one issue, particularly for Democrats in the midterm elections? It's not a question. And the fact that it isn't is absolute political malpractice. Every single freaking Democratic consultant who tells Democrats that the best thing to do is to simply avoid talking about guns and instead ta- and instead worry about other also important concerns should pack up their bags and go back to 1994. Because that is not the reality on the ground today. It is not the reality uh, that communities live through where gun violence has increased so dramatically just over the last couple of years. And the narrative bill of security, of personal security, the kind of contrast you can draw between Democrats who want to keep you and your family safe and Republicans who are flooding your communities with guns and are actively doing everything they can to arm extremists who want to kill you merely for who you are, black, brown, LGBTQ, Asian American, etc. That contrast is so powerful and underscores so many of the challenges we face in our society, so many of the divisions. And I just hope that Democrats understand that it's, it's okay to try and use a different kind of playbook in this election, one that doesn't run away from the issue as they have been for decades. Because as, as a result of that, we've seen more guns, we've seen more gun deaths, and frankly, they bear some of that blame. So when you see, uh, we saw this week, Beto O'Rourke, Democratic candidate for governor in Texas, uh, walk into the news conference being held by Governor Greg Abbott and challenging him right in front of the cameras and right in front of Ted Cruz and all the other elected officials of Texas. That was the kind of action that you think Democrats ought to be willing to take to bring attention to this issue? I lo- By the way, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, when, when children are dying, absolutely. There's no question in my mind. Gun safety activists or whatever we call ourselves, do you think we have to really up our game and be more uh, more direct? Yeah, take think, more direct action and and you know get our anger out there and really make it the issue. Yeah. Right? By the way, gun safety is an oxymoron. I prefer, okay. prefer gun violence prevention. Advocates. Thank you. Okay. Because uh, what is a safe gun exactly? Uh, look, I am stunned, Bill, by the fact that there's not an 
army of us making the kind of argument that I am. Like, I get that it's fun to go after the NRA and Ted Cruz and how silly and dumb their arguments are about arming teachers and this, that, and the other. But in a moment where you have people in actual physical power to make progress and make some changes, focusing on those voices distracts from the pressure you need to apply to get your friends to do the difficult things you're asking them to do. That to me is an absolute mistaken strategy. Yes, it may make sense when there's a Republican administration that does not care about how many people are dying. But in a moment when we've elected the biggest champion, as you say, Bill, of gun violence prevention in our history, to allow yourself to simply go to the same old rhetoric and strategy and how, oh my God, the NRA sucks and all the Republicans suck and oh my God, they can't do any. And by the way, can I just say this whole thing that some people tell me all the time, Igor, there's no 60 votes. He can't even do, Biden can't do anything. He doesn't have 60. Let me tell you something. We need to humble up a little bit, all of us. Okay. If the 2016 elections, if COVID, if Trump taught us anything is that we, the political class in here in DC, suck at predicting anything. So let's all stop thinking that we're super smart and, you know, and sexy cynical. And remember that all this, all this whole thing is entirely unpredictable. And if you don't fight, then you will most certainly lose. I want to play another voice that we heard this week. Um, one that uh, he's he's been spoken he's spoken out on political issues before, uh, but but this particular time with his passion, I guess my question to you is: so this is Steve Kerr, right, coach of the Golden State Warriors, uh, uh, at the playoffs, who came out and really addressed this issue. Uh, let's listen up. We can't get numb to this. We can't sit here and just read about it and go, well, let's have a moment of silence. And and 50 senators in Washington are going to hold us hostage. Do you realize that 90% of Americans want universal background check? 90% of us. We are being held hostage by 50 senators who refuse to even put it to a vote. They won't vote on it because they want to hold on to their own power. It's pathetic. I've had enough. Yeah. Igor, do we need more people like that, more people that you might not expect? To yes. get out on this issue. Yeah. And, you know, I love unexpected voices coming in, making arguments that we haven't heard before that break through the partisan divide. Yeah. He should go organize all of the other sports people that he knows. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they should really think critically about what they can do uh, in terms of um, making sure uh, that it's harder for NRA backed politicians to make money in order to make sure that maybe they use the pressure of their large sports franchises that bring in a lot of dollars for cities and states to push and lobby our friends in Congress to do the right thing, use the leverage you have uh, to promote this issue. And that mostly, frankly, uh, that they invest in the communities closest to the pain of everyday gun violence, either by providing economic opportunities, supporting community-based violence intervention and prevention programs. There is so much they can do. I'm so happy to have them part of this conversation. Um, and if they need any more ideas, Steve, call me. California this week. California has the probably the toughest gun laws in the country, among them for sure. Governor Gavin Newsom said they hope to pass a couple more this year, including a bill that would allow victims of gun violence to sue the gun manufacturers. Good move? It's a good move. You know, as you know, there's a federal cap uh, liability shield that prevents people, survivors, impacted communities from suing manufacturers, dealers, and importers. And I don't know, and I assume um, that that law is going to make it really hard um, for states uh, to move forward uh, in such a fashion. Um, But again, look, this is the kind of fight I'm talking about, right? You have to show lawmakers who support our issue, have to show voters 
that change is possible. Because right now, all across this country, not only on our issue, but so many other issues, people are just jaded, as you know. They have no trust in government. So making progress is critically important on this. Right. Uh, I noticed one other thing I want to ask you about is uh, um, David Frum appeared on Morning Joe the other morning, um, writes for The Atlantic. And he pointed out, this is another aspect of this that I haven't heard enough people talking about, that so much of the the issue of gun violence centers around men using guns against women. You know, even in this case, the shooter in Texas shot his grandmother, right, but then goes to school. At Sandy Hook, the kid shot his mother before he went to Sandy Hook. Um, That, I don't hear people talking enough about that aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, there's just such a, uh, it's almost like a braid bill uh, that consists of, if you think of a hair braid, it consists of masculinity, it consists, consists of racism, and gun ownership. And it's all braided together uh, here in America. And certainly, as we think about root causes, unwinding that, unbraiding that um, is incredibly important, but it's not accidental. Uh, As you know, there is just a deep history of firearm manufacturers going all the way back to the 19th century when uh, production became more accessible, uh, using those themes of racism and masculinity to market guns to Americans. Um, And so as a result, they very successfully created a culture and a language that embraces uh, those two notions. If there were one thing that we could do right now, uh, whether it's Joe Biden or Chuck Schumer or any of us, what, what to, to, to bring some end to this madness, what would it be? <laughs> bring some end to my raging at you. Uh, I Look, I think the easiest thing this president can do is open an office of gun violence prevention in the White House and staff it adequately. That will, uh, A, uh, show to the American people that this is a priority. It will just bring in so many more people who can work and think and strategize on this issue. He can do this with a stroke of a pen. No Mitch McConnell necessary. And so I urge everybody hearing my ranting to please urge the president to open an office of gun violence prevention. Uh, on that re- on that suggestion, I will join you. And I will also add, do everything we can to make sure that Democrats not only hold on to the Senate, but increase their majority in the Senate, and then get rid of the filibuster and then pass some strong legislation, which most of the American people support. Um, you focus on Joe Biden. I'll focus on Mitch McConnell. <laughs> Thank you, Igor, for joining us. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. <laughs> All right. GunsDownAmerica.org. Okay, now, before we take a break and get into the politics of 2022, as host of this podcast, I feel compelled to add a little footnote to my conversation with Igor Folsky. Look, I admire Igor and the work he and his team at Guns Down America are doing very much, but as you could probably tell, I strongly disagree with his criticism of President Biden. Let's be honest. There's one reason no sensible gun control legislation has passed the Senate or even been debated or voted on in the Senate. It's not Joe Biden. It's Mitch McConnell. It's 50 Republican senators, every last one of them. And it's two Democratic senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who refused to get rid of the filibuster in order to allow gun control to get to the Senate floor for debate. There's only one way we can end this logjam this year, and that's not to gang up on Joe Biden. It's to put pressure on the Senate to act now and then to do everything we can in these midterm elections to make sure Democrats not only retain control of the Senate, but pick up enough seats to overrule the filibuster and do what the vast majority of Americans want, universal background checks and banning assault weapons. Joe Biden's not the enemy of gun control. He's the champion of gun control. Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans are the enemy. So let's focus on getting rid of them. 
All right, now, a quick break, and then we'll be back uh, with a little wrap-up of this week's Republican primaries. Well, today, as we mourn the loss of those 19 little kids in their classroom in Ivalda, Texas, we also mourn the loss of two of their teachers, Irma Garcia and Ava Morales, who gave their lives as well. Uh, just reminds us what a great job teachers are doing in this country, how important they are to our kids. Uh, it's so sad to see two of them uh, shot down uh, by that assault rifle in Uvalda, Texas. And so let's take a moment out to remember them and their families and all the teachers of America, the members of the American Federation of Teachers, AFT, under the leadership of Randy Weingarten, doing the Lord's work in America's, America's classrooms, Every day, we salute them and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back now on the Bill Press pod uh, to talk about politics, which was going to be the number one story of the week until events overtook things in Uvalda, Texas. But to let, look at those primaries, the important primaries of the week, uh, we are joined by uh, two of our regulars and two of our good friends, Niall Stanage. He talks about all things politics as columnist and associate editor of The Hill. Hello, Niall. Hey, Bill. And Maya King, uh, our good friend uh, who covers national politics for the New York Times and is based in Atlanta. Hello, Maya. Good to talk to you again, too. Hi. Thanks for having me. So let's start, Maya, right there in your hometown. You were there uh, starting in Georgia. Well, with the governor's race, boy, Brian Kemp just barely managed to squeak it out, right? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, 50-point lead? Yeah, 50-point um, lead. He was ahead by more than 40 points in all 159 of Georgia's counties. And that includes the home county of his rival, David Perdue. Um, just a real blowout and, and something that is sending the Republican Party in Georgia into November on a very, very jubilant note. They're a lot, very confident now about this, this rematch against Stacey Abrams. Right. Um, so, uh, we know, Niall, that, uh, David Perdue didn't even want to run. Donald Trump talked him into running. <laughs> he was Donald Trump's candidate. Uh, what's this say about Donald Trump's clout? Well, it's a bad night for Trump, generally speaking, I think, on uh, Tuesday night. Um, obviously, the Purdue-Camp race being the prime example of that. It wasn't just that Donald Trump had encouraged, uh, former Senator Purdue to run, of course. Um, Trump had unusually for him actually spent money, put his money where his mouth is, uh, spent more than $2 million from his uh, political funds to try to help 
David Perdue. And, you know, uh, Maya used the word blowout, which is completely accurate, of course. You know, the polls were predicting a fairly comfortable Kemp victory, 20 points or so. Um, And then to end up, you know, roughly 50 point victory is an extraordinary result, really. Right. And David Perdue, uh, let's say, was certainly not a uh, a gracious loser. <laughs> He'd used uh, his uh, event the evening of his loss uh, to, to Brian Kemp to blast Stacey Abrams, uh, who, of course, will is the Democratic nominee and will be in a rematch against Brian Kemp. Uh, here is uh, David Perdue. She has lied to the people of Georgia. She said just this week, weekend, you know, she it's the worst state in the country in which to live. She's not from here. Whoa, uh, Maya, what does this say about the matchup between Stacey and Kemp? Well, I've, I've always I've been bracing myself for a pretty nasty matchup, or at least one that's going to be fought not just with money, but with with really sharp words. Though this kind of veers into our my my publication, New York Times. We outright called these comments racist, and I think that's that's what we that's that's what happened here with Purdue, and it's not the first time. He's made these comments um, for against black candidates. He, of course, had the Kamala Malamala diatribe in twenty twenty one. Thing is, Kemp is Kemp is surrounded by some pretty savvy political advisors, and I think they're paying very close attention to what the climate in Georgia is going to be, um, not just politically. And looking at the reception that Purdue got in the media, um, and even among some some politicians here in Georgia after that comment. Kemp is not going to be the one to to make this to make this campaign about race, and I just don't think it's smart for either candidate to want to veer into that uh, very early now in this general this general matchup. Well, well Maya, staying with you there for a second, you know, Stacey Abrams became became a, a rock star in her first campaign uh, for governor uh, to be the first uh, African American elected woman elected governor, I think, anywhere in the country, right? Um, uh, with all the nominee, nominee, with all the enthusiasm uh, behind that campaign, is that enthusiasm still there among Democrats for Stacey Abrams uh, th- this year? It is among among the voters who you know were who were there with her in 2018, saw the work that she did in 2020, and assisted it, and now are ready and fired up you know, to, to give money and time in 2022. The question is whether or not that group is large enough to put her over the top um, and do more than just get her very, very close to beating Kemp in, uh, in November. Um, and given the headwinds that Democrats nationally face, yeah. I think right now the, the Abrams campaign really does have their work cut out for them to not just hit Brian Kemp, which has been the strategy thus far, which is to characterize Brian Kemp as just the worst possible choice for Georgians in November, but also to make Stacey Abrams herself look like a candidate that not just diehard Democrats want to get behind and support, but maybe even folks who didn't vote in 2018 or didn't vote for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's just going to be tough, I think, against the backdrop of higher gas prices, um, a labor shortage, of course, the the baby formula shortage being the latest flashpoint, and Democratic, uh, Democratic, Democrat-controlled Washington that has just appeared very ineffective on these key policy issues over the last several months. Um, of course, Georgia is not Washington, but Abrams' big, big job is to make that clear, um, and I think that's going to be difficult. Now, Niall, normally uh, none of us would pay much attention to a race for Secretary of State. Again, <laughs> this was the exception in Georgia with Brad Raffensperger up for re-election uh, and Donald Trump not happy that Raffensperger didn't find him all those votes that he needed, right? Uh, again, got someone to run against him. Uh, didn't work out, did it? It didn't work out. And in many ways, I think the result in the Raffensperger race was perhaps even more surprising than the, the yep. Kemp race. Yep. I, I, I mean, Maya is, is on the ground there, so she can speak perhaps with more authority. But people I spoke to in the Republican Party in Georgia before 
uh, election day, felt that Raffensperger was in much greater danger because of how central he'd been involved in the events that you allude to, President Trump calling him and asking him to find the requisite number of votes. And because, you know, Kemp has trod this oddly careful line of really never trying to criticize Trump, even as Trump blasts him, Raffensperger hasn't quite uh, I don't think walk the same line right. there. One of the interesting points of that race, though, Bill, is that it appears, at least as I understand it, that a number of Democratic voters in Georgia uh, crossed uh, party lines or requested Republican ballots. And of course, it is presumed that they uh, came to Mr. Raffensperger's aid, effectively, as it turned out. Right. Uh, the big, you're right. I think the big surprise there was uh, that Raffensperger was able to avoid a runoff, right? Absolutely. Over 50%, which was not anticipated by anyone I spoke to, for sure. Right. So now we have a Senate race, Maya Herschel Walker, uh, and uh, up against uh, Senator Warnock, who's uh, running for re-election. He had that short, got the short straw uh, the last time around. Uh, No surprise that Herschel Walker won, uh, but he does have a little baggage, and he showed Maybe that he is not the most experienced candidate. He was interviewed by a Georgia reporter about Donald Trump. Let's hear that exchange. I want to get your reaction. One of the things that certainly motivated President Trump in giving endorsements to various candidates has been whether or not they accept uh, his claim that the election was stolen. Do you think the election was stolen? Well, I don't think. I think you. I think reporters say that. I don't know whether President Trump said because he never he, said that to me. I'm not, I'm not arguing. He with says it, it over and no, over. He again, made, no, 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 no. He is never. I've never heard President Trump ever say that. <laughs> what planet is Herschel Walker living on, Maya? Yeah, I think that's the question of this <laughs> of this primary race. Oh, gosh, this is going to be, I mean, it's really just going to be a very, I think, a really fascinating race to follow. Um, Right now, Democrats are just essentially uh, gathering as much oppo as they can and starting to push this this message, which is simply that um, Herschel Walker is not qualified to serve as a United States senator, that he has no political experience, that you can look at um, the stories that have already come out in the primary about the ways that he has exaggerated his his business prowess, outright lied about his his academic record, um, and and then they point to several interviews that he's done as a primary candidate, like this one. Um, there was one on primary night where uh, he was asked by CNN about um, you know his support for gun control in the wake of of the shooting in Texas, and sort of gave this very rambling, unclear answer. Um, and and he is is unlikely to uh, to to join Raphael Warnock on the debate stage, so mm. this is this is tough. And he's not, he's not just going against any um, you know any Democratic candidate. He is going against uh, Raphael Warnock, who is running as an incumbent, who is um, a, I, I to call him a great orator is probably um, uh, an understatement. I mean, he is the. He sits at the helm of, of Ebenezer Baptist Church, you know, uh, a, a line that, that starts with Martin Luther King Jr. and ends with him um, and and has a, a very clearly defined image already as a politician. So I, I, I think that, you know, the the ad pro, the, the ad campaign against him um, is, is certainly going to, to hurt. And it's just he is just going to have to paint himself now as someone who will be an adult in the room and not just uh, um, a Republican vote in the Senate. And I think, I think Georgia voters are kind of waiting on that, particularly Republicans at this stage. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, let me jump up. Let's jump up to uh, Pennsylvania, if we can. Now, this, of course, was a primary uh, two weeks old now. Uh, but in the Senate race in Pennsylvania, where, again, uh, Donald Trump picked his candidate. Well, he picked one candidate that didn't kind of work out. So then he jumped to another candidate with Dr. Oz uh, and a businessman, Dave McCormick, who's still a conservative Republican and very much a Trumper himself. Uh, he's Dr. Oz, at the latest I saw, Niall, is up by just under, under a thousand votes, right? That's right. And so nine hundred votes I saw, which yeah. which of course is sufficiently within the margin to trigger an automatic recount in uh, the state of Pennsylvania. So yes. So once again, um, Donald Trump's clout not as great as we 
thought it was, maybe? Yes, that's right. And I think the Pennsylvania race to me was particularly fascinating because what you had in that race was a kind of split or a juxtaposition between a candidate whom Donald Trump personally backed and Mm -hmm. other candidates, including Kathy Barnett, who were in many ways more, uh, what would we say, authentic representatives of the whole MAGA Trump um, hard Mm -hmm. hard right idea. I mean, it it seems, and I'm not even being uh, disparaging in saying this, it seems like the main reason Trump backed Oz was because Oz is a famous TV person. I mean, Trump more or less said that, that, that having a successful TV show for that length of time was like an opinion poll showing approval. Um, and I think that what you saw in Pennsylvania was a lot of Republican voters believing that Mehmet Oz was a rather inauthentic carrier of that uh, Trumpian message. Now, he still might squeeze through. Clearly, he does have that lead. Mm-hmm. But if he wins, he's going to eke out a very small victory. So so no emphatic um, backing for the candidate who Trump endorsed in that race. Right. Maya, uh, I don't know if you had, uh, <laughs> with so much going on in Georgia where you're based, whether you had a chance at all to follow um, another interesting race out in Texas. A congressional race went with Henry Cuellar uh, up for re-election, uh, facing a very tough challenge from Jessica Cisneros. Henry Cuellar, a very pro-gun Democrat and a very anti-abortion Democrat. Um, progressives, including AOC, uh, backed Jessica Cisneros. It looks like Cuellar squeezed out a win by 175 votes, or maybe it's too close to call. What does that race tell us? Yeah, this is an interesting one, because I think, um, you know, what what I've seen that's been, that stood out to me is now this anger among progressives, um, particularly those who supported Cisneros, um, at, at this turn of events, because such a small margin, like 175 votes or so, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it shows that every effort counted. And that and I think what progressives have pointed to um, are the roles that Nancy Pelosi, Jim Clyburn and Staney Hoyer played in really campaigning and backing Mr. Cuellar. And in the wake of several, um, you know, national, just huge stories, not just the, the tragedy in um, Uvalde, which is actually the neighboring congressional district to the 28th, but also the leaked, uh, the leaked draft of the Roe v. Wade opinion that shows that it's you know, very likely to overturn this summer. This is a point that, that um, Ocasio-Cortez made, essentially saying that Democratic top brass should not have lined up behind the person who uh, is, is, has an A rating from the National Rifle Association and is also the last anti-abortion Democrat in the House, essentially t- saying, um, at least on Twitter, that, you know, this is a, she called it a failure of leadership. And I think what the point that she was making is that uh, some of her, her older colleagues in the House are, are out of touch with the times here. And I think that's that's an interesting point, because I, I don't know if that, that intra-party fighting between progressives and moderates, but also the generational divide here is going away. And mm-hmm. if Cuellar is indeed um, the winner here, I, I think he's got a, a, a tougher um, term ahead of him now in heading into his 10th term in Congress. Well, Niall, that raises a question which I wanted to, to talk to you both about. Uh, looking into the, all of these primaries, of course, are, are just the warm-up lead up to the general election, where there are two looming issues one is the Supreme Court's likely reversal of Roe v. Wade, and the second is more efforts in the wake of the the, the massacre at Uvalde, Texas, on to do something about gun safety and gun control. To what extent do you think those two issues are going to dominate the mid the midterms and um, motivate the Democratic base to get out and vote? I think the second point is perhaps more important than the first, because I think the degree to which they spark democratic turnout is really the pivotal question. I don't think they will be dominant. I think they'll be contributory factors. Uh, I mean, I think inflation is 
possibly going to be the dominant issue in the midterms. But to the extent that the abortion issue and the uh, gun control issue play into all this, it do they change any votes? I'm not sure that they do, but do they as I say, spark Democrats who might not otherwise turn out in midterm years to turn out. That seems much more likely to me. We have a significant number of opinion polls now where uh, abortion is being rated as one of the top issues and Democrats are more likely to rate it uh, that way than Republicans are. Um, Now, I, I do think there are complications and nuances to this. I mean, there, there is the question of what would electing, you know, more Democrats to the House do to protect abortion rights? Like, that's a legitimate question. But the point is that the apparent imminent demise of Roe v. Wade has clearly made that topic much more central than it was even six months ago when when people were acknowledging that it was likely to come before the court in some way. It is a lot more visceral force now, and I I think we're all waiting to see how that plays out in terms of its political and electoral impact. Well, certainly uh, a legitimate question to raise about uh, um, uh, elections to the House of Representatives, Uh, but I can see a much, and I think people do see, a much more possible direct impact, uh, certainly to president, which is not on the ballot, but to U.S. Senate and to governorships, right, who who will have uh, and, and maybe could change the direction on those two issues. So, Maya, uh, how do you see this? these two issues, first of all, in Georgia with Stacey Abrams uh, and, um, and across the country? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things really stick out. One is that the governorship, you just have so much more power as a governor to affect like direct immediate change for your constituents. And I think that's absolutely, yeah, that is what Abrams has tried to say in this race. And I think that's also what Brian Kemp is saying. Um, He has already signed a bill that has been nicknamed a heartbeat bill because it would ban abortion after a a fetal heartbeat is detected, which is about six weeks after conception. Um, and that bill is currently holed up in federal court here in Georgia. But if Roe v. Wade indeed is overturned, it will likely become law here. And, um, you know, Abrams has pointed to abortion as kind of a lifeline to say, um, or at least a lifeline to those voters, again, who might not have supported her in 2018, but also, um, you know, this suburban white woman vote that has really been long seen as a swing vote and a, and sort of a a, a difference maker in elections, particularly in Georgia. Um, and I think that abortion politics is one way that she can break through to these women who might be um, a little bit frustrated with Democratic leadership, but very, very nervous about what Republican state leadership, not just at the governor's mansion, but also the state house sort of working in tandem could do. And I think it's also worth noting, um, to your point about the Senate, you know, Raphael Warnock is, uh, he has said, I am a pro-choice pastor. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that has set him apart um, from not necessarily other Democrats, but certainly other pastors and other black pastors as well. And that's been an interesting point for Republicans to try to uh, to characterize him and say, you cannot be a faith leader and also be pro-choice, which is a message that does play, I think, particularly in the South. Um, but he's, again, extremely vulnerable and running against a candidate who has said that he is uh, anti-abortion in all situations, including cases of rape or incest. So it's kind of like you've got in both races, these candidates who are just saying, I support a woman's right. I support access to abortion. And Abrams has even gone so far as to leverage her own fundraising um, to support abortion clinics and women's health clinics. And then on the other side, I mean, they're both facing off against people who have been very clear uh, they are vehemently anti-abortion. And I think the Democratic playbook, at least in their their mind, is that that's just not going to work with some voters. And it's going it's not going to work with a broad enough swath of voters um, to to make them have to change their minds or at least, you know, help propel Democrats to success in November. I'm not sure how true that is, because I do think. Uh, to Niall's point, this is a marginal issue. It's not necessarily a something that will totally, you know, alter the results. But 
there's a lot of time between now and November for them to figure out how they're going to talk about this. And it's certainly something they've latched on to. Yeah, it really does, as Niall pointed out, get to the issue of turnout, 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 which is so all important. Um, Great look back at uh, what we saw this week. Uh, Niall, what lies ahead that we ought to be paying attention to in terms of primaries? Any well, I mean, I first of all, just to circle back to a point we were previously talking about the um, the runoff or the pardon me the recount in Pennsylvania uh, is now right, going yeah. to take at least another couple of weeks for that mm-hmm. to be ended. Mm-hmm. Um, then there are you know there's a whole range of of primaries, but the last the, the races that we've been speaking about they have been i think some of the most significant that that we will see yeah. and uh, it's a fascinating picture that's developing uh i just to say a little footnote that in addition to losing the uh his his nominee for governor losing in georgia uh donald trump uh suffered a loss in idaho where his candidate lost uh, uh did not was not able to unseat governor brad little and in nebraska charles herbster whom trump endorsed also lost that race. So I saw this morning a little headline that Donald Trump is thinking, rethinking about endorsing so many candidates. <laughs> uh, maybe some of those losses uh, were a little sting that he was not expecting. <laughs> we'll see how that works out. Um, well, we are off to the races for sure uh, in 2022. Niall Stanish, Maya King, good to have you both back. Thank you so much for your time. Keep up the good work, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. And that's it for today's uh, podcast going into Memorial Day weekend. A big thanks to Niall Stanish, to Maya King, and to Igor Volsky. And thanks especially to all of you for joining us. Always good to have you with us. Now, this is the beginning of the Memorial Day weekend. Have a great weekend. And also, remember, please take a little time out to remember those who made the ultimate sacrifice for our country in our armed services and those men and women who wear the uniform today. We'll be back Tuesday. Oh, joined again by Ellie Mistal. Uh, you know him from The Nation magazine and MSNBC legal contributor who's got some pretty strong opinions about the Second Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and Samuel Alito. Don't miss that. Tuesday, the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.